honestly, I was one of those guys who who was vilifying the Johns. I think that's the the simple, easy solution. But I I don't think that's what Jesus would have done, right? This world is much more complex than I originally realized. And yes, there is evil, and yes, there is good in the world, but a lot of times it's not as black and white as we like to think it is. We will never end trafficking unless we reach the men who are fueling that demand in the first place. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. I'm Deb Gregory, curator of the Betwixt podcast. Thanks for joining this conversation. Today, we dive into the second episode of our series about sex trafficking. Now, before we begin, let me issue a parental advisory. While the content of this episode is not explicit, we will focus on a mature topic that may not be suitable for children, so please be sensitive to little ears as you listen. In the previous episode, we spoke with Catch Court Coordinator Hannah Estabrook about how to treat women who sell sex. In today's episode, we ask the question, how do we treat men who buy sex? These men are called Johns, and in Ohio, if it's their first offense, they're sent to John School, an education program that's put on by the Columbus City Attorney's Office. My guest is Chris Stoller. Chris is a John School presenter and the Demand Reduction Coordinator for She Has a Name, an organization established by Veritas Community Church that is devoted to fighting human trafficking in Ohio. Hey, Chris, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Chris is the author of The Black Lens, which is a dark literary thriller which exposes the underbelly of sex trafficking in rural America. His novel won the 2016 Grand Prize for the Writer's Digest Self-Published eBook Awards and has recently secured a contract to be turned into a film. Chris and his wife Natalie have two children, and they live in Columbus, Ohio, where Chris serves as a lay pastor at Veritas Community Church. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me about John's School. Mm -hmm. What is John's School? So John's School is a very unique program. It's still in the infancy stages. In the United States, there's only about 50 of these schools, and that's all over the country, so 50 total. In Ohio, the last I checked, there were four John Schools. It's an all-day training session for men who have been arrested for soliciting. Now, it varies by state, but basically the way it works is if it's your first-time offense and you have no criminal background or any other outstanding warrants for arrest, then you get this chance to attend the John School. It's basically an eight-hour class where men and, and women, if they are solicitors as well, spend an entire day listening to uh, social workers, survivors of trafficking, health experts, and then individuals like myself from the anti-trafficking community where we teach them the connection between prostitution and trafficking. The one thing that I've learned through the John School is that most of these guys, after they get caught once, don't end up soliciting again. Of the you know hundreds of men who have gone through this program, we asked them why they chose to solicit. And top three reasons that they gave us were lack of intimacy, loneliness, and depression. 
So 24% of these guys, lack of intimacy with their partner was the reason they chose to solicit. Another 24% was loneliness and 14% was depression. Beneath that, interestingly, was pornography, which, you know, I feel like in the faith community, pornography is the thing that ends up being vilified, right? We, we like to say that pornography causes sex trafficking. And there's definitely a connection there. Absolutely a connection. I, I am a former porn addict. And so I am passionate about helping restore men who, who have that addiction back into, into the faith community and back mm. into society. But it's not the only issue, right? In many ways, looking at porn is just a symptom of a much deeper heart issue going on. And the reason guys look at porn or end up choosing to solicit because of that is because of these other issues. Mm-hmm. Tell me just briefly, who is She Has a Name? Sure. So She Has a Name is a community of abolitionists. Our mission is to see all of those individuals impacted by human trafficking restored back into society. And we spent a lot of time on that mission statement. And the key word there is all, all those affected, because it's very easy to fall into this trap of just focusing on rescuing victims and restoring survivors and forgetting the other half of it, which is the demand side, right? There's been a few, you know, a few studies that have been done on a, on a local level, but still there's no national or scientific research that's ever been done that explores the connection between trafficking and, and the reasons that fuel it. When we think about trafficking, it's a criminal activity. And just like any criminal activity, you have both the supply and the demand. A lot of great work has been done in the trafficking community over the past decade to focus on the supply side, right? To focus on helping rescue victims and then restore survivors back in the community. But not as much work has been done to address the demand side. We will never end trafficking unless we reach the men who are fueling that demand in the first place. We're trying to help bridge that gap and help reach those men who either have already made the decision to solicit or might be on the brink of of choosing to solicit. Wow. I'm sure that has just a ton of challenges. Absolutely. My focus with She Has a Name is to really address that demand side and and help reach these men that are dealing with a lot of serious issues that, that don't ever excuse the crime, right? Soliciting is a crime. What these men have done is both illegal and immoral. But we still need to reach them and we still need to restore even them back into society. It's a really interesting word that you use, restore. When so much focus is on justice today, what is that tension that you find between justice and restoration? There's an incredible amount of tension there, right? I've noticed in the 10 years that I've been involved in the anti-trafficking community, you want to vilify somebody, right? You want someone that you can call the bad guy. I've seen so many hateful words and terms used for the Johns. There's always people that are making comments like, I hope they burn in hell and, you know, this kind of thing. And then again, you know, what they've done is illegal. What they've done is immoral. I'm not challenging that whatsoever. But uh, what goes on behind the scenes and what I've noticed in something like the John School is that a lot of these guys are dealing with issues like pornography or sex addiction, or even things that are more subtle like depression and loneliness that is fueling the demand for trafficking. Yes, these guys need to do their time. You know, we need to punish them to the full extent of the law. I firmly believe that. Our law enforcement uh, locally in Columbus have done a great job to bring these men to justice. But if all we do is focus on justice, they're just going to repeat the same crime at some point, right? So what we're trying to do um, through the John School is reach these men as soon as they have committed that crime and help them understand 
what they've done is part of a much larger issue and a darker issue that they might have not ever know existed. You know, most of these guys, this is the first time they're hearing about the connection between prostitution and trafficking. They don't view what they've done as, as being involved in trafficking. They view it as they're just trying to get a quick fix for 20 bucks. So a lot of these guys just view it as prostitution and may not know that the, the girl that they tried to solicit is someone who actually is a victim of human trafficking. So we're, we're trying to open their eyes to that world and help them understand that this is much more complicated than they thought. How did you get involved in the world of human trafficking? So I first heard about it uh, 10 years ago when I was working as a reporter out in Oregon. I was covering a small rural town. Part of that beat included a, a truck stop. And some of my sources thought it was being used as a, a front for trafficking. So we did some digging, uh, tried talking to some of the girls, tried pulling police records, and just couldn't get anywhere. I mean, no one wanted to talk to us. We could tell that the girls were too scared and the um, officers weren't saying anything. So for me, that was kind of my first exposure to that world. Uh, it honestly pissed me off that, that there wasn't anything I could do at that point in time. In that moment, I vowed that I would use my my writing skills to make a difference. So that's that's what launched the idea behind publishing a, a fictional account of trafficking that would still be grounded in reality, but would help people, you know, understand this issue on more of a literary level. Tell me a little bit more about the book that you wrote. Sure. So um, it's called The Black Lens, and it's a dark literary thriller about a teenage girl and her sister who get blackmailed into a local trafficking ring. I noticed when I first started researching this issue that there were some books about trafficking that took place on kind of more of a documentary level, right? There's been a lot of great books and films that have explored this issue from a factual basis, but there wasn't much literature that had been done on the fictional side. So I wanted to write something that could help people kind of learn more about the emotions that go on in these types of situations mm. um, and really speak to the heart, right? Mm. Since it's one thing to hear about the statistics and learn about the facts, but to actually try and, you know, put yourself in, into the girl's situation and experience that on a firsthand level. That, that was my goal is to help people understand what this is like. Mm. And all the complexities involved. Right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So to make that believable, I had to do years of research. I interviewed uh, more than a dozen survivors, and then I did some interviews with police officers um, and social workers to make sure that the book, you know, while while it reads like a crime thriller, to make sure that the book was still accurate and believable. So when you were doing all of the research involved in writing the book, did you spend any time with Johns? You know, I did not. And that's one of my biggest regrets. When I first started researching this, honestly, I was one of those guys who who was vilifying the Johns, right? And I, you know, I, I wanted somebody that, that people could express their anger towards. And so for me, um, when I was writing the main character of Zoe, um, you know, my own personal anger was was channeled through her because the Johns were the ones that were you know, ultimately abusing her and raping her. So yeah, at the time I didn't interview any Johns and looking back and I wish I had because what she has a name has taught me is that this world is much more complex than I originally realized. And yes, there is evil and yes, there is good in the world, but a lot of times it's not as black and white as we like to think it is. Hmm. So I wish I had interviewed Johns. What would you have written differently if you had interviewed, say, the, the Johns that you've met through the program? You know, I think there would have been just more complexity with some of the characters in there that are you know, actually involved with, with the trafficking ring. 
one of the men that I talked to at the John school, he had just celebrated his 50th wedding anniversary. Think about that. 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. And we always ask these guys why they chose to solicit. Most of them don't respond, but some of them do. And he told me that he chose to solicit because he couldn't remember the last time he'd had sex with his wife. Hmm. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, and she didn't even remember his name anymore. Oh. Doesn't excuse this guy's behavior. Should he have tried to solicit? Absolutely not. But it helps you understand some of the issues going on, right? So this guy's issue is not, you know, he's not a sex addict. He's not a porn addict. He just has serious relationship issues that he needs help with. Mm-hmm. So we always try and encourage these guys to to seek professional help with counselors, uh, people in the faith community that can that can really help meet those needs. How has that impacted you personally in terms of how you even relate to Johns and see them? It helps me see them as human beings. In the anti-trafficking community, we tend to vilify the Johns, and I think that's the the simple, easy solution. But I I don't think that's what Jesus would have done, right? He had compassion for people that were were struggling with issues, compassion for prostitutes. And if he had compassion for a prostitute, I guarantee you he would have also have had compassion for the person soliciting the prostitute. So it's just changed my view of them and in, in looking at them as actual human beings and human beings that need serious help. Mm-hmm. And how does this realization and this compassion that you're coming in terms with inform your vision for this restorative work? Sure. So one thing that I've noticed with uh, the demand work that's been done already throughout the country is that one of the most common solutions to addressing demand is what I call John shaming. You know, you may have a list of names or photos of Johns who have been arrested. And basically, you know, it's you slap up a billboard and... I know this is extremely controversial, but to me, that's not going to solve the problem, right? Just putting up someone's face and and name onto a billboard is ultimately, I believe, can do more harm than good because, uh, you know, a lot of these guys are married, do have children. And there's been instances, even in Columbus, where the child or the children of the John end up getting harassed at school or the wife gets harassed by her friends. And so there's collateral damage, right, with that approach of the shaming. Mm. It doesn't address the root issues that these men are dealing with, right? I think Mm. better work can be done, more comprehensive work can be done addressing the root causes that drive men to solicit rather than shaming them after they've already solicited. That's just Mm. kind of putting a Band-Aid on the problem. And yet there's so many reports that say shaming can reduce recidivism by up to 70%. Here's one from WOSU that says, shame is the biggest factor in reducing recidivism. That's such a allure. I mean, so many legislators say, okay, well, that's an easy fix. It's a win. Why shouldn't we shame? Yes, absolutely. I don't deny those statistics. I, I think that it, it can reduce recidivism. The question for me is, at what cost? It's only dealing with the aftermath of once John chooses to solicit. It's, that approach says nothing about reaching men before they solicit. Mm, To really reducing the demand. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I read a paper recently by a Yale law professor, Dr. James Whitman, and he just had a really interesting approach on the whole shaming issue. And pretty much he says what you're saying. You know, we can approach 
the shame issue by saying that it's dehumanizing, first of all. But he's saying that's not really the main issue. It's that when we take a power that's given to our legal structure and hand it back to the public, it just reinforces the old lynch justice system. Right. Where the mob mentality can enact whatever vengeance it sees fit without any restraint. So as you mentioned about the children of the Johns, the wives of the Johns, I think of other situations where it really impacts their employment or their ability to get housing and other dire situations as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to a, um, a lieutenant the other day right before they went on a sting operation here in Columbus. And one of the things that he was mentioning to me is that, um, so first of all, this, this lieutenant does not believe in the shaming approach. He, he thinks it also does more harm than good. But he was mentioning that what he thinks there needs to be more of a focus on from you know, from a, a legal and systematic perspective is increasing the penalties. Because he said right now, at least in Columbus, your ticket for soliciting typically costs less than your ticket if you run a stop sign. So think about that. Okay. <laughs> According to the law in Columbus, you can end up being fined more for running a stop sign or stoplight than for soliciting a prostitute. So just think about that. I mean, our, the way our, our legal system is structured right now, um, there's really not much penalty. And a lot of these guys don't end up be doing any jail time. So I think there's there's definitely more work that can be done from from a justice perspective that doesn't get into the shaming. The, the lure of the shaming approach, the whole idea is to prevent guys from doing this in the first place, right? Because they don't want to see their name up or face up on a billboard. But I think we could do the same thing if we're to increase penalties and you know, if it does cost a lot more money, or if you do end up spending a lot more time in jail, that could be a deterrent as well. At least that's what this lieutenant was telling me. What does that say about our cultural values, if we're unwilling? Yeah, it shows that our cultural values are are completely lopsided in this area. I mean, the good news is, you know, it used to be that police officers were just focused on arresting the women. So thankfully, you know, at least in Columbus, we've, we've reversed that where uh, now more officers are going after the buyers, after the men, um, which is much more of the Swedish model. So we've at least caught up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think in terms of the actual punishment, it's still lopsided. Yeah. You know, I just uh, interviewed Han Estabrook at Catch Court. And mm-hmm. it was hard for me to transition from talking about the women of Catch Court, their two-year probation period the incredible fines and punishment that they face as prostitutes. And then to hear this for the Johns, it's a day at John school, right? Right. It's a day. It's a traffic violation, basically. (laughs) Right. You know, so it was really hard for me transitioning to feel a sense of compassion when I felt the the tension between how our system wants to handle the suppliers sure. and the, the demand side, um, so how do you how do you sit with that? Because you got into this first thinking about the women, right? Right, absolutely. Yes, I definitely started this thinking solely about the women and helping them. But the longer I've been in it, the more I've realized that these guys need just as much help. I mean, it's so easy to lose energy, emotional energy, and to get burned out by thinking of everything that we could be doing from a legal and political perspective. Again, I, I used to be there, right? I get the rage. I get the desire to, to have someone to punish, but it has to be more than that. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to channel that rage into, you know, an appropriate way of helping these guys rather than um, just joining in the, the John hatred. I try to just 
focus on the heart, right? Focus on on the men that we do have a connection with and trying to help see them restored or prevent them from soliciting in the first place. That's such a pastoral approach. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. I think another aspect that I'd really love to explore with you is the space of John's school. Uh, so much of my focus with the podcast is on this idea of liminal space, mm-hmm. the space between things where transformation can actually happen. And a lot of times it's a place where we enter in and we have to remove something that was old in order to take on something new. And identity mm-hmm. is a big part of this. So what does that kind of liminal space look like for John's school? What is being asked of the Johns as they come to the school? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think what's being asked of these men when they come to the John's school is why they're there. That's the question that's hanging over the group throughout that entire day. And we ask that question multiple times throughout the day because we really want them to get to think of why they are there. Some of these guys think that they've been caught up in some sort of entrapment situation set by the Columbus Police Department. So we're not focusing on the legal aspects. We're trying to focus on how did you get here, right? What what was going on in your life that led you to this point? For some of these guys, there is no liminal space. It happened one night. They were drunk. They were you know, dealing with some issues at home and they just made a rash decision to to solicit. So for some of these guys, it's their first time really thinking about these deep questions. But we have had success with some of these guys. Uh, one of the guys came up to me after the class and was just in tears and said that he he was a Christian. He had moved to the Columbus area a couple years ago and wasn't able to find any friends. Um, his parents live actually out of the country. So one night he was bored and drunk and decided to go on the back page and uh, responded to an ad that ended up being an undercover vice cop. Before he knew it, his hands were behind his back. He was being arrested and all the way to jail and then got the chance to attend the John school. So it was his first time offense. He had just through a series of decisions, you know, made the call to solicit and was just completely broken by it. We ended up getting lunch, I think it was a week later after the John School, and he told me his story and how he'd just been struggling with depression and loneliness for years and thought that, you know, visiting a, a, a prostitute would, would satisfy that craving for him. As a result of meeting with me and learning more about She Has a Name, this individual ended up attending our anti-trafficking training she has a name, a three-week class, started coming to Veritas Community Church. So he has now since graduated from our trafficking program and is an active volunteer with She Has a Name. It's an amazing story. He sent me this letter, which he gave me permission to use. And he said, um, over the past few years, I've been battling loneliness and depression. These struggles led me to make the worst decision of my life. A few months ago, I found myself at rock bottom and made the decision to solicit. Thankfully, I was arrested and stopped short of making a horrible mistake. Since this was my first offense and what will be my last, I was allowed to participate in the John School. I knew going into the program that I wanted to get involved in the fight against trafficking, but after participating in the program, I knew I had to. The program opened my eyes to the world of trafficking, and in my heart, I knew I wanted to help in any way possible. Through my experience, I found a relationship with God and gained a better understanding of the awful world of trafficking that prior to this experience, I knew nothing about. 
I wish more than anything I could take back my mistake, but in a strange way, it's made me a better person. I know now I can move forward and raise awareness of dreams of ending this horrible issue. So that to me, I mean, that that's what it's all about, right? That's one individual whose life has been changed. He had been in that liminal space, right? He, he knew that he was heading down a dark path and this was kind of him hitting rock bottom. So for him, this class was kind of a wake-up call and a rebirth where he was actually able to cry out for help. I think that is the, the power of the John schooling. For those who have eyes to see, right, and those who have ears to hear, it can actually transform those men. That's a beautiful full circle story. So from a pastoral perspective, what is your desire for Christians, for churches, for church leaders? What's a way forward for us as we grapple with Johns who might want to come to our church or who are interested in the path of restoration? How do we engage that? That's a great question. When it comes to churches in this issue, nobody's going to know whether or not someone is, is a John, right? Unless they, unless they announce that. But I think what churches can do a better job of is really trying to help men and women, but especially men that, that are struggling with issues that can lead to solicitation eventually. You know, this guy that I mentioned, he did not struggle with porn. He did not struggle with sex addiction. He struggled with depression and loneliness. And I, I feel like within the church community, those have been stigmas. And we don't do a good job of helping individuals that are struggling with depression and loneliness. It's an easy response to just say, trust God more, right? <laughs> and maybe take medication if, if it's a liberal of enough church. But I feel like that's an area where churches do need to do a better job of really trying to help people that are struggling with chronic depression or loneliness. And even men that are struggling with actual sex addictions to provide a space for them to find healing. Yeah, I keep thinking of that passage where you have a group of religious leaders and Jews that are trying to stone the woman caught in adultery, right? And Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, he was without sin, throw the first stone. What if rather than a woman caught in adultery, what if it was a man caught soliciting a prostitute, right? Guarantee you, Jesus would have said the same thing if that was a John standing in there. You know, Jesus didn't excuse that woman for what she did. And I don't think he would excuse a John because he he says, you know, go and sin no more. He's very clear what you did is wrong. Don't do it again. But he's also it's a call to us as the people with the stones in our hand to, to put those down and really try and love that woman or that man and, and help them. Hmm. When it comes to trafficking, it's very easy to just have a black and white view of it. Right. That the girls are the <laughs> the good guys and the men are the bad guys. I feel like we need to, to break down that stereotype and realize that this world is much more complex. The men who have committed these crimes and should be held fully accountable for it, they also need help. We as, as an anti-trafficking community and as a faith community, we've got to do a better job of reaching these men um, so that they can find that liminal space and find transformation. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, it's yeah. and it's so hard to do. And I think that what makes this hard from an ethics standpoint is what the man is doing is hurting, of course, himself, but he's hurting the woman. He's hurting our society by paying and supporting and building up a system um, that's destructive for all of us. So from that standpoint, I totally get why there's more rage towards this destructive aspect of what Johns are doing. But yet... Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you in the sense of 
if we're not working for restoration, mm-hmm. what's going to change? Right. And where's the kingdom of God? Exactly. So for you living in that liminal space where you care about the women very much, that's what brought you into mm-hmm. this world. And yet both Christians and other abolitionists are very skeptical of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what keeps your fire burning? Ah, Man, that's a great question. I think what keeps my fire burning is knowing that we have one guy that his life has been changed, right? I mean, I never, ever would have thought I'd live to see the day that that one of these guys who solicited would become an anti-trafficking volunteer, let alone a, a church member, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's only possible because of a space like the John School and because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that we can do all that we want with strategies and tactics. We can do all that stuff and all that stuff's great, but we've got to remember that, you know, ultimately it's going to be the Holy Spirit who changes someone's heart. And Mm -hmm. that's the only way we'll be able to address the root causes that lead men to solicit is through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, that's, that's what keeps me going on a personal level for me. I, I mentioned earlier, I am a former porn addict and seeing how God has transformed my life and made me an advocate because of it. That's what keeps me going. I, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was struggling with pornography, it was actually during the same time that I was working as a reporter uncovering the sex trafficking ring. And one of the main characters in my book is actually kind of based on, on me, on that experience, realizing that there was a tension and hypocrisy there. I was trying to learn more about this issue while struggling with something that can fuel it. (laughs) Wow. So you're writing about your own dark side here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And seeing God transform me. um, I mean, I can say that. So my wife and I got married in 2009 and I have not looked at pornography since 2009. And the only way that that was possible is with the help of the Holy Spirit. So Mm. I've seen God transform my life. I've seen it transform that John's life. And I meet regularly with men who have serious pornography addictions and seeing their lives slowly transform Mm -hmm. one day at a time is what makes it all worth it. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And one last question for you personally. Have you had a threshold moment as you've stepped into this world that's so other from the world that you live in? Mm -hmm. Was there a moment where you said, this is something I must be involved in because this has somehow changed me. Hmm. Yeah, I I think the one threshold moment for me was when I actually met with that John and sat across from him and had lunch with him. That was the first time I had actually met face-to-face with a guy who had chosen to solicit sex. And, (laughs) you know, I, I was telling my wife this. I know it may sound weird, but it was odd to realize that This guy looks just like me. He, you know, looks like a normal guy. He doesn't have horns coming out of his head. You know, we we have these stereotypes of what these men look like, and they're they're all over the board. I mean, the John School has people who are you know in their early twenties all the way up to their seventies and eighties, and they're black and white and Latino, and it just it runs the gamut. There's no one stereotype of who John is. I mean, recently in Columbus. Uh, they arrested a principal. They arrested a police officer, right? There's no one stereotype of what a John is. So for me, just when I was sitting across the table from that guy and looking in his eyes and realizing that, that here's a guy who's, who's in dire need of help and he's, he's reaching out to us. And, and even if we're only able to affect that one guy, then for me, it's all been worth it. Mm, wow. That's restoration, right? Absolutely. Yes. 
Well, I'm glad that you have answered this call in your life, (laughs) that you've stepped over the threshold, that you're engaging in a world where people are, they are demonized and Mm -hmm. misunderstood and broken. Yes. And that you're working toward the restoration and justice Mm -hmm. of those in this world for the good of our society and especially for the good of the kingdom of God, right? Absolutely. So that's great. Well, thank you, Chris, for the work that you're doing. I know it's complex. Yeah. So thanks for leading in that way. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. This episode was really difficult for me to produce. I found it hard to remain objective because I feel the rage that surrounds this issue. Engaging this topic after producing the previous episode on Catch Court with Hannah Estabrook, I feel frustrated by the unequal penalties faced by prostitutes and Johns. When I think about how Catch Court women spend two years in an intense probationary program, but Johns only face a day of lectures and a small fine, it feels like they basically get off the hook. It poses a lot of questions about how our society values men and women. And yet, the Catch Court program it seems to create a unique liminal space in which real transformation and restoration happens for women more evidently than for the men in the day-long John School. So if lasting change requires the passage through a liminal space, then Perhaps this is one reason why Catch Court seems to have more transformational impact on the participants involved. So I'm glad for the extra time and resource provided to the Catch Women. And I can only hope that more Johns will experience that kind of transformation as well. Now I know that this is a really challenging and controversial topic. But I really admire how compassion and even a resistance to shaming fuels Chris Stoller's work within the abolitionist community. And he's left me with a challenge to embody mercy and compassion, even in the fight for justice. So I hope that something in our conversation might have challenged or encouraged you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missyoualliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Space